Last week, if you weren't here, we began this series, One Minute After You Die. And if you missed last week, you really need to go back last week and listen to that because we learned uh, about eternity from Jesus and the New Testament. And uh, we learned about this important fact that what we believe about eternity determines how we live today. Because if there is no God, if there's nothing after this, if God is just some sort of grandfatherly bearded guy in the sky that just loves you and pats you on your head and says that you're just okay the way that you are, and there's no, there's no real motivation to change anything, right? Why, why change? Just, just stay the same. And why change how we live? Or why would we live for anyone other than ourselves? And honestly, there's no hope. I mean, you get that, right? Because if there's nothing more to life than this life, that you're just born, and then it's just an ongoing struggle, pretty much focused on minimizing pain and maximizing pleasure, uh, but there's still pain, and there's never quite enough pleasure, and then you grow old and die, there's not a lot of hope to that, right? There's no hope, and, and, and maybe that is reality. Now, most Americans don't believe that, and certainly Jesus made it abundantly clear that there is more to this life than this life, and, uh, and, and that there's more to this life than this life. And we talked about last week what happens after we die, and from what we learn from Jesus and the New Testament disciples and writers. And the reason that we take the New Testament seriously is because it's based on a man who predicted and pulled off his own death and resurrection, and hundreds of witnesses witnessed this, documented, confirming this fact. And the resurrection is what Jesus gives credibility. And again, today, I, I want to repeat uh, something that I said last week, I'm going to repeat again next week, is that through this series, we're going to look at verses and words and imagery and metaphor and simile that can sound very fairy tale like and some are attempted uh, to discard it as once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away in a magical land, because when we read some of the imagery that's used in the New Testament to describe otherworldly scenarios, it can sound like a fantasy movie. But again, it is crucial to keep in mind a fundamental literary rule. Whether it's Jesus trying to paint a picture of eternity or heaven or hell or whatever he's trying to paint a picture of, or John trying to describe everything that he saw as God gave him a peek behind the curtain of heaven and eternity and all of this, whether speaking or writing, all of these individuals, including Jesus, were limited and constrained to the language and the concepts of the physical world that they lived in of that day. Last week, I asked you to imagine that you were able to travel back in time to 1692 colonial Massachusetts and trying to describe architecture and industry and technology in 2021 and trying to describe skyscrapers and electricity and, and giant tubes made, made of metal with wings that can fly hundreds of people, hundreds of miles an hour for thousands of miles while you sit in a cushioned chair and trying to describe a smartphone and the ability to talk and send words, pictures invisibly through the air to anywhere in the world and being able to access limitless information by tapping the surface of this thing that lights up using a rechargeable battery. But to do all of this, you were limited. You were totally limited and constrained to the language and the physical world and the technology of 1692 and how insane you would sound. How, how fantastical and impossible it would sound to the 17th century hearer as they dragged you off to the gallows to burn you as a witch, okay? And once again, if you're someone that you get hung up on the imagery and the metaphors and the similes of the New Testament, I would just warn you not to do that because it's intellectually dishonest. 
Because one of the fundamental literary rules is understanding any, any, of understanding any literature is to read it and give full consideration of its historical and cultural context. So bottom line, with any literature, context is king, okay? So all that to say three words. So again, as we dig in, remember the entirety of the New Testament written in a first century Mideastern context with the authors and even Jesus being limited and constrained to the language and the physical world of the day, not to mention it's written primarily from a Jewish mindset or bent. So with that all in mind, last week we talked about the soul separating from the body. And we think about judgment, we discovered there's actually two judgments. We looked at uh, the, the great white throne judgment and we looked at the judgment seat of Christ and rewards. So, so please go back if you missed last week, because I'm not going to recap all that. Uh, today I'm moving on to talk about something that can be a little bit challenging, because today I'm going to talk about the horrors, the indescribable horrors of hell. Now, why would we talk about hell? I think a great answer actually comes from Penn Jillette. I've actually quoted him uh, before years ago. He said this in one of his YouTube videos. I've always said that I don't respect people that don't proselytize, that don't talk to people about their faith and try to win them over. I, I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell, and possibly that people could be going to hell and not getting in eternal life, or you, and you think it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? And this, this line is so powerful. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I think for most of us, including myself, we'd do well just to sit on those words from an atheist, no less, for a bit. I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that a truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. So today we're going to talk about the uncomfortable topic of hell, because based on what Jesus and the New Testament writers had to say, there's a lot at stake. Now, what's interesting is 74% of Americans believe in heaven. Not shockingly, the majority of that 74% believe that they're going there. But while 71% of Americans believe in such a thing as hell, just half of 1% expect to go there when they die. Uh, and only four in ten self-identified Christians believe that those that don't know Christ will spend eternity in a place or some version of a place called hell. So if there's a hell, who's going there? Well, if you ask the general public, the answer will be, not me, somebody else. And, and even then, it's only for the super evil people, just a very few, okay? But most of us, we're going to be okay. But the, but the problem with that is that Jesus said some things that would imply very clearly something very different. Jesus said more than once, enter to the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many, many enter it, and many enter through it. So Jesus would say, not, not a few, many people. Many people are on a path that leads to destruction, and then he gives the contrast, but small. Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only how many, only a few find it. So Jesus would say, you've got it backwards. Like so many things, you've got this flipped. You, you think most will go to heaven, but that only a fraction of a percent will go to hell. But Jesus would say, I hate to tell you this, but like so many other things, you've got this backwards. Now, if you were the devil, and we'll talk more about him in a second, but if you were the devil, what would your strategy be? 
See, if, if I were the devil, I think I'd try to convince you that there is no hell. And that even if there is, that there's really, it's really not that big of a deal. That you don't really need to take it that seriously because only about half of a percent are going to go there anyways. Most people are going to go to heaven. And if I could convince you of that, then odds are you would live a pretty carefree life. I mean, why wouldn't you? I mean, you'd, you'd justify all of the lines you cross. You'd justify all of your sin. And you wouldn't be that concerned about the people around you because you have no reason to be. You'd pretty much ignore Jesus at best, reject him at worst. You'd pick and choose what is right and wrong based on what you feel is right and wrong, is what's best for you, and, and you would live with no fear of God because there's nothing to be afraid of. In fact, the amazing thing is from the dawn of life, the, if, when you read the first chapters of Genesis from day one, the enemy has, has successfully employed one strategy to cause us to doubt God. That has been the consistent strategy, hedgehog principle, to doubt God and his goodness, doubt his trustworthiness, doubt his holiness, doubt his promises, doubt his warnings. If you're a follower of Christ and I could convince you that hell isn't real or not that big of a deal, then you would live ridiculously self-centered lives. You'd idolize comfort. You would reject sacrifice. You would avoid persecution. You would not likely share your faith with very many people because why would you? You don't need to, because if hell's not that big of a deal and all roads lead to heaven anyway, you'd have no real sense of spiritual urgency. There's no point. And to be brutally honest, for many of us, it's essentially the way we live today. But that all this raises an obvious question. If hell exists, yet God is so good and so loving, well, why? Why does hell, why would a hell exist? And it's a fair question. And I could give you many reasons, but for the sake of time, I'm going to keep it simple and just focus on two overarching reasons that Scripture teaches that hell exists. And, and the first one is, hell exists for God to deal justly with Satan. The devil, I said we talk about him. Now, many of us, when we think of Satan or we think of the devil, we think of a guy in like a red unitard with a black goatee and a pitchfork and horns and, or something creepy defect, uh, depicted in a movie. If it's R-rated, it is really scary, okay? Or uh, in the world of Netflix, bored with being the lord of hell, the dashingly handsome devil relocates to Los Angeles where he, he opens a nightclub, okay? Uh, but you need to understand the reality. The devil is in the embodiment of evil. The devil is the embodiment of evil, pure evil, all evil. See, if, if, if the apex definition of God is love, and the devil or sa Satan is the antitype, the opposite of God, then it goes to say that the devil is the apex or the embodiment of the purest of evil. Zero good, zero light. Behind every addiction is our spiritual enemy. Behind all abuse, all fear, all shame, it all comes from a term we've romanticized from the prince of darkness. The devil is called the destroyer, the deceiver, the dragon, the dark angel. He's called your adversary, the tempter, your enemy, the wicked one, the thief. He's called the father of lies. It is his native language. He's called the angel of the abyss. He is the thief that comes with full focus and unrelenting resolve to do everything he can to steal, steal your joy, kill your faith, destroy your relationships, crush your health, ruin you financially, obliterate your marriage, hurt and destroy your children and your grandchildren. Think of all the atrocities committed 
that you've seen in your life or in recorded history, racism, enslavement, murders, tortures, genocides, terrorism, beheadings, rapes, trafficking, the exploitation and the torture of women and children for the sake of sexual pleasure. Jesus says behind it all is the devil, Satan, the fallen angel. He's very real and he is the source of every evil. And we're told in the New Testament that hell exists for God to deal justly and righteously with this global multi-generational terrorist. Now, the Apostle John, he gives us a glimpse from God what the future holds. John describes it this way, and the devil who deceived millions, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Why does hell exist? Hell exists for God to deal justly with the source of immeasurable pain and evil, the destroyer. It exists for this, the, the one who committed all these atrocities and the, the lies that he's afflicted from the very beginning. Now, I think most of us, with that kind of description, be like, all right, I can go for that. But the next part is harder for us. Hell also exists for God to deal justly with unbelievers. Now, this is where things get complicated and uncomfortable. And trust me, I get it. I understand why so many people would say, that, that doesn't seem fair. I mean, my neighbor is not a Christian, but my neighbor is a good person. I mean, there's no way that a good God would send a good person to hell. I mean, my neighbor makes me treats during the holidays, and they're really good treats, and my neighbor watches my dog when I'm gone, and, 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 and God could never send a good person who makes me treats and watches my dog. They send them to hell. I mean, we'll come back to that thought. But what's interesting is that almost everyone who would argue against the idea that God would send people to hell are equally indignant anytime there's any injustice on earth. In other words, if there's some type of wrong or injustice done by somebody on earth, then people will say somebody should pay, especially if it's severe or strong, right? Somebody should pay. If somebody wrongs another, then they should pay for that wrong. In fact, we have a saying, the punishment should fit the crime. Yet the very same people who are defenders of justice on earth and that somebody should pay, there should be consequences, often argue that God is a God, should be a God of love and mercy and grace, but not of justice. This is an important inconsistency. Another pushback I often hear is something like this. Well, what about somebody that lives in some like remote spot on the planet and they never have a chance to hear about Jesus? You know what? Fair question. Absolutely valid question. Jesus himself helps inform my response. We're told that one day someone asked Jesus, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? So this, this is a version of the question, like, what about everyone else? What about other people that don't know how to be saved? And look at Jesus' answer. Jesus said to them, you, the, the implication is you, you make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able to. See, what Jesus does here is significant. The, the person asks this broad question, and it actually is a good question. But the problem with the question is it casts light on everyone else. But because Jesus was so brilliant, he knew part of what this person was doing was distracting from the fact that they had important information. 
that they possessed information that they needed to make a decision about for their life. So his point is, don't distract from that. Or don't use that to justify rejecting it by feigning some global concern about everyone else. The question is valid. But here's what we all have to resolve in our mind and we ultimately have to come to and come to grips to when it comes to God. He is God and I am not. He transcends space and time and I do not. Which means that he has a perspective that I can never have. And in the end, that we have to trust God will do what is right for everyone. So essentially for now, I need to deal with me. Because the truth is, we all want to, make, we, we all want to remake God in our own image to justify our lifestyles and our moral decisions. I mean, God is love, right? I mean, so he'll just kind of give a wink towards sin. I mean, he understands. I mean, yeah, he's holy and righteous and everything. And yeah, God has standards for me. But in the end, it doesn't really matter, especially if I'm someone that believes in grace. Because in the end, I mean, God's going to forgive me anyway. So I can go ahead and just do what I want to do. I mean, God's just going to kind of look the other way. Here's what we need to understand. It's impossible for God to be a good God without him being just. And let's be honest, we, we don't really believe that God can be loving without being just, do we? I mean, because think about it. There are some offenses, there are some atrocities uh, so vile that you may have even experienced in your own life, but for sure that, that have been committed in, in history, that if there are no consequences, even in ourselves, we go, that would be unfathomably wrong, unfair, not good, Right? In my life, I have worked with hundreds of young women who were childhood victims of sexual assault and trafficking. What would you think of a judge or a legal system that caught the offenders, but then simply let the perpetrators off without consequences? It's like, hey, you know what? Everybody makes mistakes, and you know, you've got needs, and because we want to be loving, we're just going to look the other way. You would be appalled. There would be riots, Okay. And, and, and this is no fun to talk about, so I know it's, I'm sure it's no fun to hear about, but if we don't accept the reality of hell and who it's for, then we will never fully appreciate the magnitude of our sin, the holiness of God, or the magnificence of the good news of Jesus. Because God loves us as any loving father would do. He warns us. He warns us of the dangers of, of distrusting him and going our own way. And the Apostle Paul, he tells us in the, one of his letters, heads up, guys, God's going to punish those. He's going to punish those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And it's like a pleading, like, listen. And again, this, this is a difficult thing to process, but once again, it comes down to, can God be trusted? In other words, this may be the easiest definition of hell that you'll ever hear. Hell is where God is not. And for most of us in our lifetimes, we've seen things on the news. We've had atrocities happen in our own families. We've seen situations. It's, it's a, like a glimpse uh, of a circumstance or a situation where we would look and go, there is no semblance of God there. Like, like wasn't that long ago ISIS was like all over the news, right? And like, what was happening? Like, okay, there's no good in that. Like, 
Just a small snapshot of a godless society. And we'd say that was pure evil. That was God forsaken. Imagine a place utterly abandoned by God. Utterly abandoned by any trace of any kindness or goodness or any checks and balances by God. Jesus in Luke 16, he gives us a brief glimpse through a a parable, a metaphorical insight, what hell might be like. Jesus says there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linens, and he lived in luxury every day. And in that context, it meant this this guy was like Saudi prince rich, okay? Being dressed in purple was implied royalty. When he uses the term linen, that means what this guy was wearing could have fed like a, a, a poor family like for a year. Everyone understood this guy is like Jeff Bezos rich. So verse 20 says, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Implication, the rich man had more compassion on dogs than the man, and the dogs had more compassion than the rich man. The story goes on that both Lazarus and the rich man die. The time came when the beggar died and the angel carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in, uh, and, and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. Okay, what in the world is Hades? Okay, Hades is the Greek word used in the New Testament that is the equivalent of the Old Testament term Sheol. And this is uh, not the same thing as hell. Okay, Hades is evidently a temporary place. Uh, after life on earth, before the judgment, where people without Christ go. So you'll read in scriptures elsewhere that later, uh, that later Hades is actually thrown into hell. Well, what exactly is Hades? I can't tell you exactly. But apparently it's some sort of temporary place where those without Christ go, and it's a place that evidently you don't want to be. Luke says, in Hades, where this individual is hurting, where he's in torment, he looked up, he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So we've got a rich man in Hades, and there's some sort of chasm, a gap, and so he's able to see to the other side. And, And on the other side, you've got something much more pleasant than Hades. And you've got Abraham, which for the Jews is their number one guy, right? They're all called children of Abraham. So you've got the number one guy who's, he's, who's not there with someone famous. He's there with this nobody beggar. So this rich guy maybe thought, well, if the beggar can get Abraham's attention, hopefully I can. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. And last week we saw that for a Christian, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But for those that are without Christ, to be absent from the body is the beginning of suffering. We get a glimpse of uh, what one day will be a place where God is not, where there is no love, there's no comfort, and overwhelming for longing for peace that will never, ever be satisfied a place of unspeakable torment. And again, limited to first century earthly examples and metaphors. Hell in the New Testament is referred to with terms like a fiery furnace, burning sulfur. It's a place where there's weeping and gnashing and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Hell appears to be a place of isolation. It's called outer darkness where there is no light. We know for certain that hell is a place where there is no hope. In Revelation 14, it says, they will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night. And again, don't get thrown off by the language. Again, remember, 
Jesus to John, they are just desperately trying to describe something that is otherworldly, using first century earthly metaphors and similes and objects. But the punchline is clear. Hell is utterly horrific and terrifying. And it's the final place for those that will reject God. Because God isn't going to force anyone into heaven against their will. He offers an invitation that we have to accept. And the Greek word that's translated hell is Gehenna. And this world comes from the valley of Hinnom, which is a very real place on this planet. And again, being limited to earthly examples, the people then would have known exactly what they were referring to. Jesus used this word multiple times, reflecting a real place that's just on the southern edge of Jerusalem. And this is where they would burn waste and sewage and flesh. Uh, Gehenna was where some of the early, some of the ancient kings of Judah actually sacrificed their children in fire. It was deemed to be a cursed place. It was where they would throw dead animals and the bodies of criminals, uh, human waste. The fire was always smoldering, and the waste was teeming with maggots and worms and burning flesh. The smell was beyond sickening. So it was the best earthly example for Jesus and the disciples to use to try and describe hell. So what is hell? Well, based on Scripture, hell is a nonstop eternal fire with torturous suffering, an unending frustration, sorrow, and pain. A place where there is no good, no beauty, no laughter, no peace, no friendship, no joy, no hope, no love, and no more second chances. Which is why the rich man cries out from Hades to Father Abraham, since neither you or Lazarus can help me, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Please do something to reach those that are still alive on earth. I don't want them to come to experience what I'm experiencing. And from this story, there's at least four important lessons that we learn from the other side. The first is this, the rich man was fully conscious and aware. He has memory of what he did and what he didn't do and that people on earth were still at risk. He's experiencing very real and overwhelming pain as well as, un, as, well as unending regret that he couldn't go back and change what was going to happen for, from there on out for him or for anyone else. The second thing we learn is that this rich man's eternal destiny was irrevocably fixed. He somehow understood there was nothing that he could do to change his circumstances, that that opportunity had permanently past. And he just recognized this is what it's going to be like forever. The third thing that we learn, and this is kind of incredible, the rich man somehow knew that his suffering was just. If you notice, he complained about the pain, but he didn't say this isn't fair. He somehow understood that he hadn't done whatever he needed to do. He hadn't believed whatever it was that he needed to believe, that he didn't live the way he was supposed to live. And even though this was all very painful for him, it was just. The fourth lesson we see is that the rich man begged and pleaded for someone to, to help his brothers know the way to avoid Hades and hell and instead go to where Abraham and Lazarus were. Somebody go tell them about the goodness and the grace and the beauty and the forgiveness available to them. I thought I was okay, but I wasn't. I, 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 I wouldn't listen. I didn't understand, but now I do. Please do something. Somebody go tell them. Now, with all that, again, why? 
Why are we talking about something that's so difficult and so weighty and so hard to digest and painful? Because what we believe about eternity impacts how we live today. And if I were the devil, I would try to convince you that hell is not real, or at least that it's not that big of a deal. Nobody's really going there, only the worst of the worst. Like Hitler, he'll be there. Everybody else, you know, pretty much okay. We're all probably going to heaven, so don't worry. In fact, there's a whole version of theology that has developed and was made famous just a few years ago, universalist Christianity, in which verses are selected to make an argument that Jesus came to save all. And there are specific verses, when you cherry pick them, you would get that impression, meaning everyone will go to heaven. But again, remember, in literature, context is king. And the New Testament wasn't just written from a first century perspective, but it was written from a Jewish perspective. And prior to Jesus, the God of the Jews was not the God of all people. Everybody else was, they're not okay. But Jesus came to introduce something that wasn't for a nation, it was for the world. So, of course, Jesus and the New Testament writers would use language like for all people, for all mankind, for the world, to communicate that the good news wasn't just for the Jews, it was for all people. And again, if I could convince you that hell's not real, or at least that it's not that big of a deal, that nobody's really going there, everybody is okay, we're all probably going to heaven. If I could convince you to believe that, then you would just easily live for today. And why not? Do whatever you want. Justify your sin. Reject or ignore Christ. Pick and choose what you feel is right or wrong for you. Live with no real fear of God. If you're a Christian and I could get you to basically put eternity in the back of your mind and convince you to not take hell seriously, then you would live ridiculously self-centered lives. You would do all that you could do, again, to maximize comfort and minimize discomfort and inconvenience. You would reject sacrifice, avoid avoid persecution, you would fall in love with this world and believe this is all that really matters, and you would rarely, if ever, share your faith. Why would you need to do that and create that awkward situation? I'm completely aware that many of you right now are like, I I don't know if I want to believe in a God like that. I don't know if a, a God that would send good people, and this is the fundamental breakdown of where our society is today that there are no moral absolutes, and that we're okay just the way we are. That is, until someone hurts or mistreats or rapes or kills or steals from someone that we love. Suddenly then, we're all for, we're not so for moral moral relativism. And just follow your heart, you know, you're just okay the way that you are. In fact, this may be the number one root problem and misbelief about our nature and about God. The idea, the concept that God doesn't send good people to hell, because here's the problem. Inherently by nature, we're not good. Now, I know this goes against everything that culture teaches us, right? With our participation trophy, culture teaches we've got a good heart. Just follow your heart. No, our heart is wicked. One writer of the New Testament said it this way, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand this? And here's the thing, you know this is true. And the reason you know this is true is because you have regrets. There are moments and decisions in your life. You look back to a moment in your life, and you, you followed your heart in that moment, and now you look back and you go, what was I thinking? How could I have been so stupid? How could I have thought that was a good idea? You followed your heart. Or we're a good person. No, we're not. I know I'm not. I, I've lied. I've cheated. I've stolen. 
I'll guess you have too. If for a moment you stood in front of the full holiness of a perfect God, you would suddenly recognize the depth of your brokenness and our wickedness. We are not inherently good people. Just ask a three-year-old to share their favorite toy and see what happens. Every lie, every hurtful word, every affair, every rape, every assault, every embezzlement, every evil was perpetrated by someone following their heart. We inherited a sin nature. We are bent towards sin. We never have to have in preschool room a class to toddlers on sin. Okay, preschoolers today, we're going to teach you how to be selfish. We're going to take this from you, and then we want you to scream, mine. No, we don't have to teach them that. Why? Because we are by nature selfish and sinful. We've all sinned. And what we have to recognize about God is God is absolutely holy and he is absolutely just. He cannot be holy without being just. And because he is just, wrongdoing must have consequences. But God is not just just. He is also love. But love isn't just what he does. Love is who he is. And I want to read you some words that you have most likely heard before, but I want you to just pretend like you're hearing them for the first time. And if you've never heard these words before, then I want you to embrace them as truth from a holy, just and loving God. John, Jesus' intimate friend and follower, summarizes Jesus in this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world because the world's already condemned. He sent him to save the world through him. For the wages of sin, Paul tells us, is death which is what we deserve. But the gift of God from his love is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. How did God show his love? Paul says, while we were still sinners, his enemy, still spitting in his face, Christ died for us. Well, what did Jesus' death and resurrection do? It paid the price for our sins, satisfying God's justice, while simultaneously displaying his amazing grace an unquenchable love. Jesus demonstrated God is pursuing you, not to judge you. You're already, we're already condemned, but in love, desiring that no one would perish, so much so that he sent his son. No one loves more than that, than to lay his life down for those that don't even know him, with no guarantee that they will reciprocate or respond. Jesus didn't come for the perfect, he came for sinners like you and like me. And Satan is a thief and a liar who exists only to steal and kill and destroy and drag everyone that he can to hell with him. But Jesus said, I have come. I've come that you might have life, new life, and have it to the full. That's why we launched this church, New Life, four years ago. Because we want people to know him. Not just to uh, avoid the horrors of hell, but to experience the grace and the goodness and the love and the power and the mercy and the holiness and the righteousness and love of God. What you believe about eternity affects how you live today. And if we don't understand the horrors of hell, we will never truly appreciate the goodness and the grace of the price that God paid by sending his son so that we could have eternal life. As we wrap up, I want to invite the, the band up. For those of you that, uh, for those of you that are a Christian, you'd say, I'm a Christian. And you, you'd say, there's someone in your life that you know that doesn't yet know Christ. Just raise your hand. Okay. If 
you're joining us online, just put yes. I want you to bring them up to the front of your mind, and uh, we're just going to pray for them. Father, I ask that you would do whatever it takes to use us. God, give us wisdom. Give us the words to say. Help us to overcome our fears. God, send people into their classrooms and their workplace, their family and friend groups, their teammates. Shine light into the darkness, God. I pray that you would send people who know you and know your love and know how to love. And may your love irresistibly draw them to show the goodness and the grace, uh, to know the goodness and the grace of your son, Jesus, into a place of repentance. And we just thank you in advance for those that seem unreachable because some of us at one point, we would have been described as unreachable. And we believe by faith that you'll use us, you'll use others, you'll use your Holy Spirit, you'll use circumstances, you will use whatever to bring them into your family. Use us, God. Give us a sense of urgency. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I'm going to keep this part really short. You'll never see your need for a Savior until you recognize that you're a sinner. And when you recognize that you've sinned, then you see your need for grace. And for some of you, you might say, God and I are not okay. And you need to know you were never made right with God by being good enough. You can't be good enough. It's why the gospel is such good news that Jesus came to do what we could never do for ourselves. He was perfect. He was righteous. He had no debt to pay, which is what positioned him to pay our debt. And God raised him from the dead so that anyone, and that includes you, it includes me, that calls on his name will be saved. Jesus came for sinners, for you and for me. When you turn from your sins and you call on him, he hears your prayers. And he makes you brand new. And if you're someone, you'd say, I recognize I need forgiveness. I need his grace. I don't want to just live for today. I don't want to live my life anymore without him then I want you to work up the courage to come and talk to me after service. Message me. Click the link online. Let us know. Uh, click the online card, and we will have a conversation within the next 24 hours. But don't put it off for one more day. Let it today be the day. And then be sure to come back for heaven next week.